Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Mohit Bandari is an orthopedic surgeon at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He is a prolific researcher and is a recipient of the Order of Canada. It's kind of hard to even articulate what this conversation was about because it touches on so many different aspects of his life from productivity to social media to even how to give effective presentations. He even plays some of his favorite songs for us on the episode. Check out the show notes below for links to his Instagram and his papers in the Canadian Journal of Surgery. We hope you enjoy. Dr. Bandari, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel. We really appreciate you taking out the time from your incredibly busy life. A lot of our listeners obviously are going to know you quite well from all the work that you've done. But for those listeners who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about your training and career pathway? Yeah, well, first of all, both Chad and Amir, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it's an honor to be on Cold Steel. And I wouldn't have, uh, I changed the world to be on this. So I'm really, really excited to chat with both of you. Um, you know what? I'll give you like a pricey, but I tell you, like a lot of contextual things I'll talk about that we may get into, I, I really starts back really, really early for me, which is about grade three or four. And it'll explain to you why this all matters. Um, Mid 1970s, you know, maybe grade three, grade four, I learned, right, I, I painted a lot. Um, and this has come back to me like in the last weeks and months, right? I've been doing a lot of that. But I, back then, I, I really, really, really loved painting. I went to my parents. My parents are first-generation immigrants from uh, from India, and uh, you know they're working hard. They're working you know twelve-hour shifts. And I said, "Mom," I, uh, I sat them down and I said, "Listen, I think I have a dream now. I want to be an artist." They looked at each other. They smiled. My mom said something that I'll never forget. Son, you need to find another dream. And we never spoke of art again. And that moment for me was really particularly important because at that point I said, you know, like, they're, they're killing my future. Like, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to be. And little did I know that that decision for them to say, focus on it. It'll come back to you. One day it'll come back to you. And I had no idea. But then let me fast forward. So 1980s comes around, right? 1980s is that's the year of Van Halen. I mean, that is when everything is going crazy. I'm a skinny Indian kid, right? I'm rumored to be doing pretty well in school. And what I needed is I needed a very serious, very serious protection. So I said, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find a way to use my art and I'm going to protect myself with finding individuals who could be part of my defensive team. And if you're back in the days in the 1980s and you know, high school in uh, sort of a hammer town, a steel town, which was East Hamilton, there was basically one genre of music that you had to live with. And that was Van Halen. It was, it was ACDC. It was Iron Maiden. And luckily, I had the ability to make, paint jean jackets back in those days. So I would paint jean jackets for every one of these, what we call the metalheads. So I became pretty good at that. And also I had fairly good encyclopedic knowledge, relatively speaking, of rock and heavy metal. So this particular group became very close to me and they became this group of people said, you know what, you keep doing your studying. Don't let anyone bug you. We're going to protect you. And we had this protocol. I jokingly look back and called the safe protocol, guys. So S-A-F-E. First thing, sit in the back of the class. Always keep your hair shoulder length and wavy. I had like a mullet. like So it was like you know very business-like on top, but long at the bottom. And I friendship built with all of these, um, you know, really, really folks who sat in the back and they were strong, strong influences on metal. And all I said was the way I'm going to survive. And they said to me, saying, Mo, listen, you get into trouble, just name drop. I said, all right. So, you know, if I ended up in some part of the school, you know, I was a young kid, you end up some part of school and you just name drop these individuals and you survived. And through art and through knowledge of music, those two things were particularly really, really important to me. And that got me through it. 
we're, we're flying away, life's going on. And guess what happens? You know, I get by some, you know, fast forward to 1990, I enter into medical school. But 1990 for me was, you know, um, University of Toronto Medical School. And that summer was this summer, right? This was the summer where this song came out. And this song came out was a classic if you are into, you know, this sort of genre of music. So it's the first, you know, it's exciting. I'm in medical school, you know, and they had the whole motto was just do it, right? Get out there and do it. So I was extremely excited at that point thinking, hey, I'm going into, you know, school, I'm going to be great, but I had no idea where I'm going to end up actually, no idea. And because I had no idea where I was going to go, I was pretty open to everything, right? So around 1991, I had my first orthopedic right? And when that happens, it was very, very different because it was the first time where I thought, you know what? I think this is the type of person and this type of group I can get I can get used to. And why? Because they were playing the type of music I had grown up with. So it was a very, very different time. And so this was the riff. I'm not joking. That as soon as this happened, I fell in love. That was it. You know, when I heard this, I said, okay, this is the people. I'm gonna be part of this group. And so we kept going, right? So we kept going, and what happened for me was is um, orthopedics became the thing. So I didn't have any other options. I said, you know, for myself, I'm not going to give myself other options. I'm going to go full bore on orthopedics. So I keep remembering, and I remember as a medical student, that first elective, and that first elective is very important, you know, and I remember now when I have a medical student or a student, even pre-med who comes, every single thing that people did, I remember that moment where I had the first time where someone actually called, pronounced my name correctly. So it took the time to say, you know, Mohit, Mohit. That's how you pronounce it? Yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Okay. And then in an OR with tons of people, they said, you know, where's, where's Mohit? And it was like this fellow, Toronto was fellowed up, right? Lots of fellows, lots of residents. And they're looking around saying, I don't know who this guy is. And uh, I'm in the back just standing there, like terrified, basically, uh, behind a mask with my hands kind of really high up, right? And, you know, all, all the things you would do as a medical student. And he says, come here, come here, come on, come on. There's a parting of this wave of residents. He says, you see this screw here, you know, simple thing, right? Take, take the screwdriver and take it up. But I'm, you know, it was the fact that he, you know, allowed me to do it. But more importantly, uh, this particular surgeon for me became the focus of the type of individual I wanted to be. So that for me was kind of like, okay, you know, this is it. Love at first sight. I'm going to go. And I'm, and I remember how he melt, made me feel. So I don't really remember all the things he said, but I felt something when I was with him. So I said, you know what, this is it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm committed. So kept going, um, got through, um, um, I, you know, I, I got through uh, medical school, went into orthopedics at McMaster University around 1994, five, yeah, around 1994, I graduated, got into, medical, uh, got into orthopedics at McMaster. And around 96, same thing happened, right? I, uh, it was another flip and it was a flip for me was, okay, well, what are we going to do next um, for me personally? And we were at a time, it's weird, right? You end up at the place you're supposed to be, I guess. And McMaster was just starting uh, this program called Design, Measurement, and Evaluation. You know, fast forward now, it's one of the most recognized programs in the world, but they call it Health Research Methodology. But also remember that Gordon Guyatt, who is this, in Canada certainly, is you know one of the forefathers of evidence-based practice, actually coined the term evidence-based practice. And literally, just a short three or four years before that, had been starting this movement at Mac, truly had been starting it. Around 1990, he became the program director of internal medicine. So he'd been starting this. I showed up right around the time where he had been doing it for about five years and was probably thinking, we have to expand this into surgery. So, you know, you need a vehicle. You need somebody who's willing to put in energy and time um, and understands the value of this potentially. Now, I knew I, I had energy and I had a little time, but I did not understand the value at that time in 96. But fast forward again. We push for 1998 and we get our first CIHR funded uh, pilot study, which is about 88,000. It was called the SPRINT study, the study to prospectively evaluate ream nails and tibia. That question is almost boring, if not mundane right now. But at that time, it was the biggest thing that I could have ever thought of in my head. And, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. We're going to change the world. It didn't change the world, but we thought it was going to change the world. And it did something very interesting. It didn't change the world. It changed orthopedics in a way that I think it got people working together that hadn't done it before. And it got us over that glass ceiling of orthopedics trials and studies are all small and they're all case series. And this is the first one that, that beat the 1000 mark. So we had the first study that had over a thousand patients and was collaborative between Canada and, and uh, you know, and uh, the national institutes of health. So that was a fairly big deal for us. 
And I can talk about at length about how many times that trial never happened. Like I, there's multiple times where I had gut wrenching pain thinking, oh God, this is it. My future's over. This is not going to happen. We had multiple events like that, multiple things that like crisis that I thought were going to end the trial in my career. But you know, obviously as luck would have it, you keep plugging forward and that's exactly what happened. So we kept plugging forward. Um, and Around 2003, graduate. Uh, you can see there's, a bit of, there's more than five years of orthopedic training because I took time away to do a master's at that time. And I took a few years for research at that time as well. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up around 2003 doing a trauma fellowship in Minneapolis and Los Angeles. And then I came back to McMaster as an assistant professor, but they had offered me a, Canada, a junior tier Canada research chair, which was uh, very, very exciting for me because um, that was something new. Like that was something that was... Um, you know, for me, a, a really big uh, measure that they said, you know, we, we support you. We want you to do well here. Fast forward again to 2014. Um, you know, I get this call saying you've been uh, inducted into the Order of Ontario. And I said, wow, like completely, you know, a little bit sidewinded. And we can discuss how that happened. But for, for shortness, four years after that, I get inducted into the Order of Canada. And so... You look back quickly, um, you know, in, the, in that period of 2018 backwards, and you just can't imagine that things didn't happen the way they did for a particular reason. And here we are now in 2020. And in 2020, um, everything is different. Like we're in um, what I would call, um, you know, this product productivity paradox. And I mean it that way because for most of us, right, we've been stuck in a situation where you want to do something in your, your, you know, doing, do, do, uh, due to physical distancing policies, we have to be at home. And it's been very interesting talking to colleagues and friends. I suspect you both are having your own experiences around this, but there's a sense of saying either, either some people are super productive right now or others are feeling completely the opposite. I feel non-productive and I feel like I've lost something that, 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 that's part of me. Let, let me touch on a couple of things you yeah. said there, Mo. I mean, I, I, lo I love that line. You, you end up at the place you're supposed to be. That, that is such a deep and prophetic and, and, and potentially powerful line, depending on, I guess, if you live it or not. Yeah. You, you and I have had lots of conversations um, about, about that exact concept. Like, you know, you're such a star from the very beginning, as, as, as you've outlined, and so well-respected. How is it that you end up in Hamilton? How is it you make that choice? And, and why not go to Boston? Why not go to L.A.? Why not stay in L.A.? Why, yeah. why Hamilton? Yeah. Well, it was interesting because at that time, uh, so, you know, yeah, I remember, like, you know, we, we, have, we have this trial going on. So I've got CHR funding. Um, you know, and quite frankly, um, and I'm being recruited a lot of places in the U.S. Toronto is heavily, heavily invested in, in having me come to Toronto. Um, and obviously, McMaster is invested in having me stay at McMaster. And, uh, and the biggest thing is, like, I, have, I had a huge amount of difficulty in um, saying no to anyone. So I was just trying, I was attending mm -hmm. all these things, smiling and Giving, I'm sure I'm giving people all kinds of mixed messages like, oh, does he want to be here? Like he seems always happy and he's always talking about how great it is here. And it was really, really, really tough. But the thing that I think, and I'll never forget these words, Gordon Guy said to me, he goes, Mo, you know, just remember one thing. You can go to the greatest bricks and mortar places around the world. They're going to show you the best, 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 um, you know, facilities and the most high tech things. And they're going to tell you the world is yours. And that is true, but without people, none of that's going to happen. So he goes, yeah, stay loyal to people. People will move and maybe you will too, but your loyalty should always say, where are the people around me that are going to allow me and share the same culture vision and roadmap for my life that I hope to have. And if you have that, it became a very, a very, very easy decision. There were, Mac was always going to be home. I just needed to, you know, I just needed to realize that. Um, and you get caught up in the fanfare of the possibility of just someone wanting you that you forget that. So, yeah, you know, you know, I, I think it's so important for all of us, including me to, to hear that, um, you, you know, you, you can make so much out of where you are. Um, the people around you, the, the content in terms of uh, publishing around you, the opportunities are so broad, particularly in a connected world that, you really can do so much from so many places now, no doubt. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and for me, um, and I suspect it's for both of you, you realize very quickly that you can write papers if you're academically inclined, you can conduct major, major studies, um, 
you know, virtually. And if, if no other time have we realized the value of some of these tools, I think we're feeling it now. I mean, this is probably no better mm -hmm. time. Now, whether this is a bubble or a boom, I have a perception. I think this is more of a bubble. I think once we actually get back to human contact, people are going to feel that that is a much better alternative than uh, video conferencing. But when there's no other option, video conferencing is a very, very useful tool. Yeah, it's been a remarkable shift. There's, there's no doubt about it. I, I want to go back and just touch on, you know, your, your receipt of the Order of Canada. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, of course, you being the humble guy, uh, I didn't know that, and I, I sort of walked into it a little bit randomly, and it, yeah. it absolutely <laughs> blew my mind. Not because he didn't deserve it, but because of the, the, the impressive nature of, of that honor. I mean, that's really the, the, the pinnacle that a lot of us could ever strive to. What what was that like getting that getting that notification? What was that whole process like in in Rideau and and all? Yeah, of that? yeah. So like it was very interesting. Um, so I remember exactly again. You know, you're sitting there. I was sitting um, at the office, and I got a call, and it said, you know, it says GC Canada. I thought oh, it's some tax thing. I don't know what this is. So I just didn't answer it. I said, I'm not picking this up. And then the next time it rang, I said, I better pick it up and, uh, and pick it up. She was, oh, hello. And it was a, a French, um, definitely a French speaking uh, individual. And she was a lovely woman. And she was talking. And I kept thinking, she goes, you know, oh, we're having a big event uh, in Ottawa. We'd love to have you down. Uh, congratulations. And she just was talking. And I kept thinking, oh, this must be around. I said, oh, there must be some induction. And because I'm the Order of Ontario, they're asking me to come to this event. That's right. I completely thought that's what it was. Right. I said, Oh, okay. So I blew it off. Said, yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. And I was very like, mm, okay. And I'm thinking I'm not going to this and I won't have time for this, but, um, hung up. And then, you know, you have a moment where you just pause and you think, Hey, I wonder what, hold on here. She said on Ottawa, why would I go to Ottawa? This would be an Ontario event. This would be Queens park. So then obviously I'm now I'm thinking, what have I done? Have I just somehow denied myself from getting this? And so I called them back immediately and I couldn't get back through her. So then I'm, you know, that period of waiting anyways, she calls back eventually, and I say, "I go, I may, I, uh, I think I've made a grave mistake." And, and the gentleman says, "Okay, yes." Uh, he goes, "Can you uh, let me? I think I'm not sure if I was just told I've been receiving the Order of Canada, or if there was a, whether that was a mistake." And he says, "Oh, one second. And it's like an airline man. It's like he's clicking away. I'm thinking, "What the? What are you typing? Just type my name and tell me if I got it." It's this process of going. And he says, "Yes, I do see your name on this." I said, "Okay, so I so I received it." And he goes, "Yes, it would appear that way." And I said, "Okay, okay. So what do I do?" He goes, "We will be in touch." And he hung up. Wow. I said, "Okay." And that was it. And it was this weird moment of like, "Holy smokes, this has happened." Went from the worst phone call ever to the best. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was very, very different. And you know, the funny thing is, so you're there, you're surreal. I'm, I'm, I'm there with my wife, Sonia, and my daughter would have been, well, she would have been uh, 10. And so we're just, so, so, and because she was young, she was very young, and they, they, there weren't a lot of kids there. So right. They got, she got put right to the front row with Sonia, right? And so they're, they're on TV a lot of the time. And the interesting thing is I'm standing with um, this lovely woman who's about to be 85 on one end of me, and there's another lovely, lovely woman on the other side of me who's probably in their 70s. And, you know, we're just standing there, and I realized in, in what something she whispered to me at the time. She said, I just want to get back to what I do. Like, it was almost like nobody here ever, like, tried to get this. They, it's almost like they, they were trying to solve a problem and whatever that problem was, and they just, and they fell in love with the problem, not the solution. So, you know, you get caught up in, I, I'm going to solve it. And this is the way I'm going to do it. It's like, no, whatever the problem is, I'm going to solve it. And, uh, and they just looked like that. They just all wanted to be back doing their thing. This was uh, almost an interruption of their day, a very lovely interruption, but this was a very unique group of people. Um, let, let me go back a little bit and, and, and just touch on your particular, um, uh, group in, in McMaster. And you've mentioned, uh, Dr. Guyette a, a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. But that research group obviously is so much more than than just Gordon Guyette oh, and you. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, tell us how that group works together and 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 how you leverage each other and and I'm curious even about the physical environment. I, I know that's changed over time, but yeah. But how do you guys work as uh, such an amazing collective? Yeah, so I mean, the, a big part of it is 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 you know as much as uh, Gordon doesn't or didn't ever think of himself as as the proverbial leader of this, of this group, we all thought of him that way because so many of us had been influenced by him, but really what it was to me was, and, and it's all the things you hear about, right? If you, if you think about what makes a team successful, a group successful, it can't be too big, right? So you need, 
we were at a point where you know, I kind of used the magic number. We were about five people, and it was pretty cool. The other thing that was really interesting about this was each individual was different. So it wasn't that there were um, a homogeneous group of, let's say, surgeons or a homogeneous group of internists. It was this think tank of individuals came from every angle. So when you would go and propose an idea, you would receive so much insight that was tangential. You'd think it's tangential, but it's absolutely critically important to you know, your area. So you, would, you wouldn't have thought those things. You wouldn't have thought to think of it from the perspective of a leading intensivist in Deborah Cook or uh, an absolutely brilliant uh, you know, uh, uh, epidemiologist in Brian Haynes. And by the way, Brian Haynes was the individual when, you, when, you know, when people say, you know, when, when, when I go on PubMed and I want to find the, you know, the RCT and, and use a search filter, he, he designed the search filter for it, right? So the, these are the types of thoughtful individuals. And obviously there's, you know, Gordon Guy, the, the, you know, the, the quintessential professor. But there were younger, uh, say younger, but earlier career individuals. I was very early career old to get that time. Um, we came back around, you know, it'd be around 2003, 2004. Um, and this other fellow, PJ Devereaux, who's just, you know, become a giant in the field of perioperative medicine. I mean, fundamentally created a field. He's created it. I mean, people didn't talk about perioperative cardiac events as a field or as a service until he said, you know, I'm going to see if we can solve immediate 30-day outcomes after surgery. And by the way, a lot of patients are dying from things they shouldn't die of, right? And it's our job, if, if you can fix them in a way, we've got to keep them alive for those 30 days. And he spends life doing so far. And so these individuals are particularly, um, you know, just it's impressive being around them. And the reason that part of it is, and I'll get to the last point, is it's just when you're around individuals who um, just set the bar so differently and so high that you always felt, and I must say, I, you know, it's a cliche, but they say never want to be the person who's overachieving or the most achieving in the group. You want to be the underachiever. I have uniquely felt that for my whole career in this group, uniquely. When I received, um, and I'll just use a simple example, but I, when I came in and I was about to talk about, hey, we're about to do this really big study of a thousand patients, PJ, that day said, you know, we've just launched a 40,000 patient study. Wow. Um, I was going to, you know, someone said, Oh, you know, well, we got the order of Ontario at that point. Um, you know, all three of those individuals that had the order of Canada. So it was always like, you know, this is just, this is the, this is the environment you're in. Um, and you're, and no one, and, and let me say it again, nobody chases these accolades. It was just, that's who they were. And they lived, they eat and they breathe collaboration, uh, and this sort of energy. And when you have research meetings, you feel it every single time. Oh, that's, that's remarkable. Yeah. But you know what happens is we, uh, Chad, uh, as a group, we tend to congregate with like, like, like-minded people. And the biggest yeah. thing you can do, you know, if, if, if you look at every single startup entrepreneurial thing on any, any pick, pick any website about how to be successful in life and business, every, every statement they make is, you know, surround yourself with a diverse group of people, people who think differently than yourselves. We have to do that. That's about it. Yeah, it's so true. You know, there, there's no question. I, I think it's safe to say across all specialties within surgery, you're really the trialist of our of our uh, contemporary generation. There's no doubt. I mean, we even if the content of your <clears throat> of your massive trials doesn't apply to what we do, we we pay attention to methodology, we pay attention to structure, we pay attention to some of the things you're talking about, networking, and and how you've done it. I was wondering for, for our listeners if you could go through that because your your trials are thousands and thousands of mm -hmm. people. They typically are often involve China or India. Or right. They ask very fundamentally important, almost population level applicable questions. How, how, how do you view that? And, and, and superficially, how do you do it? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So I made a calculated decision and this was always because, okay, so I'll, I'll take you to the, the, the the, the real influencers. So Gordon was obviously influenced. The Clarity Group, I've, I've, just, I've already mentioned to you, was you know one of the real big influencers. Um, but Salim Youssef is another really very important figure in McMaster's history and continues to, to be there. But he, many, many years ago with Richard Pito, uh, and he's a cardiologist who does these megatrials. So when you think of aspirin and heart attack, that's Salim Youssef. Right when you think of um, you know ACE inhibitors and, um, and congestive heart failure and all this sort of stuff, and you know, it's him. You think of all the big hope, you know, he's, he's, he's branded them all. He said something simple in one of our classes a long time ago. And he said, 
if you go big enough, you don't have to get fussed about all these different strategies that people use to correct for the reason they're not going big enough, which is stratification. You know, making sure you're you're you've got you know uh, you, you stratify by all these mil- uh, tons of variables because you're afraid you're going to be imbalanced. When you get big enough, you just get balance and keep your outcome simple. Don't get caught up on complex outcomes. It's is are they are they alive or are they dead? Did they have an infection or did they not? And if it's a small amount, just get bigger. And that was the psychology of it. The question was, well, how do you do that? Um, it doesn't work to send emails out, even in this modern environment, to send emails out to a bunch of people you've never met unless you've actually physically invested time in those countries. And so in 2003, for better or for worse, when I got there, I probably, uh, you know, I mean, I, I got my million miler status very early with Air Canada because I was traveling all the time. And people say, you know, most like oh, the guy's on a plane all the time. He's just, you know, it's vacation time. Research is vacation time. Um, and you know, I wish I would have had time to sit with every one of them and explain to them the strategy because it was a pure, it, it was a guess, right? But I'd seen other people do it. And the simple idea was, if you want to be able to run big programs, big programs come back to the very fundamental thing, relationships. You People rely on you and you rely on them. And the only way to get to know someone is to physically, you know, sit with them, chat with them, have a meal with them, learn about them, understand their family and have them do the same with you. And so it was a period of travel. I must've spent several years traveling to India on my own dime, not never asking for anything. I never was expecting anything except to simply go around that country and say, you know, I was born in this country and I want to figure out a way to work with you. And there's that concept that when you do that there and then you go to, you know, all over Asia and you do the same thing in Europe, eventually you get on the phone and you can say, we have a study and, you know, we'd like you to get involved. And there's a different level of connection. And the truth was, I didn't want to be reliant on the United States. I didn't want to have to go because the cost of running research in the United States was so expensive yeah. that we can, we can now run Chad. And I'll give you a simple example, which is just happening right now as we speak. We're about to submit a grant for the CIHR rapid um, you know, response to COVID. The, the, the call came out about five days ago or six days ago. It was a rapid thing. Um, and we decided and we've mobilized a study for 5,000 patients in 11 countries with 20 investigators, the majority of whom are from low middle income countries. And they are signing up um, and wanting to do this. And they've uh, mobilized in a way I've never seen them mobilize. This would never have been able to have happened had I had not invested all the years before to build these relationships. And I just say that there's no shortcut in that. You've got to get out there and meet people because you know humans interact with humans, no matter what we think. Um, that's that's the fundamental core is get out and interact with people and just dive in. I think sometimes hard for folks, maybe at the front end of, of their career or at the beginning of that process to understand that, you know, the money that you personally put in and the investment of time, which of course is even more important than the money, probably will pay off down down the road and, and is worth at least the, the endeavor to try, you know. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a quote that I use. I don't know why it pops into my head. I'm sure it happens when you're driving. I know you are a, also have an encyclopedic knowledge of music, Chad. But, you know, people always say, you know, uh, why are you still doing this? Like, why do you do it? And there's a line from, uh, of all things, an Ice Cube song that's for the love of money. And it starts off something like, they ask me why I'm still in the game. Yes. Is it for the love or for the money? Yes. And if everyone getting paid in love, I'm in it for the love. But if everyone getting paid in money, and he goes on and on and on. And the funny thing is, when you start working and surrounding yourself with people who really, really love it, that's all you want. You get paid in love. You love what you do. You don't chase the dollars. You don't chase anything. You, and because what happens is, you know, and people say, well, you know, let's, and this happens a lot, right? So, and, and I'm assuming, uh, Amir, you, you will back me up on this one, which is when you're early in your career, you say there's a good opportunity. Let's see if we can find some way to, to, to get that research grant because it's a very specific grant. I think we can, we can change our ideas a little bit just to fit the grant to get the money. We do it all the time. But I can tell you, when you fall in love with a question or a problem, you don't think about the money. The money will come. You just start falling in love and you start developing the problem in a way because you're, when you write, people say, well, when you speak, you know, it's, it, people can tell if you're genuine or you're not. When you write, people can tell if you're genuine or you're right. Your heart goes into how you write. And so... If you, I can tell very quickly in reading someone's paper or grant whether this is just some write-off thing that they're looking for another check mark for a paper, or they're truly invested in this. And that's what I think you can expound when you get really, really engaged in the work you do. I absolutely, one hundred percent agree. Although it's it's very, I think, uh, hard to figure that out 
uh, earlier in your career what those fundamental questions are that, that you want to solve because uh, I know that I have uh, enjoyed everything that I've done and, and I'm interested in lots of different things. So uh, is that like did you figure out very quickly or is that something that kind of evolved over time? No, it took, it took me a decade. It took me over a decade. So, you know, you'd start off with what is, okay, what can we do, right? What's doable? And then you can, you get good. So you can teach, virtually all of us can learn how to write a grant. I mean, a really good grant, like you know, the mechanics of a grant. Uh, I would say 99% of people cannot articulate a powerful story. And, you know, and if, so I would say to anybody, um, find good storytellers. If you can find a good storyteller, um, learn from them. And, you know, you may not find them in um, our field. You might, you might look to literature. You might look to art. You might look to music. You might look to comedy. I mean, some of the greatest storytellers are, are comedians, right? And you watch and you see how they weave a story. Uh, one of the greatest storytellers, at least in a movie to me, is Quentin Tarantino, right? So he tells a story, but he tells it in ways in which he unravels the truth in multiple different ways. So, that storyline has to become important. This is no longer about a study or a question. This is about answering a very fundamental question in a very long and important story that we're going to tell over the next 10 years. And the more people you want to engage, the simpler the story must be. By necessity, big ideas are simple. And I know I've said this probably for a decade, because I, but I say stuff not because I'm trying to preach it. I say it because I'm trying to remember it for myself. So the more I talk about it, the more I remember it. And the more I say, how do we keep this simple? How do I make sure the results of this study apply to the person in mainland China, to the person in South Africa, to the person sitting at the Mayo Clinic? How do we make that happen? Uh, and that becomes the big test. And that becomes an, a question that is the question that we all try to ask. You know, this is a perfect segue, you talking about Quentin Tarantino and storytelling. Because a few years ago now, you came to Calgary to give um, a, a talk and, and to judge our uh, resident research day. Oh, I and, love that day, yeah. And it was, it was honestly uh, eye-opening for me because... I never seen anyone give a presentation like that, and and this isn't, uh, you know, from looking at other stuff that you've done. That's not a one-off wonder that that you did for us. That you clearly have a sense of how to tell a story in presentations that I that I think, frankly, surgeons just don't get. Um, can can you talk about how how you think about giving presentations, um, and and particularly uh, if you could talk a little bit about how you use the visuals on uh, on your powerpoints because i think that is inc- very powerful yeah so you know so you know so here's the point right take me back to the great the great three to his parents who said son this is not your career um and and, and the funny thing is is that um i've always it's just you know something that i've always felt i wanted to explore and while i wasn't going to become a formal let's say artist or painter um, I've always thought, you know, how do I find the things? And this goes to all of us. I mean, you have, Chad, you, you know, Amir, you, you've got it. You all have things you do that give you joy outside that it would not be considered, quote, work for you. There'd be an, an extracurricular activity of sorts or something that gives you peace. For me, it was art and it was to some degree music. And so I've tried to say, well, how do I continue to advance myself, um, you know, with that sort of interest? And so I, and I've also gone away from the idea, and this happens with just time. You know, if I look back at my first presentations, and I actually have some from about 15 years ago, they are virtual, basically, um, you know, 12-point uh, documents with 12-point font of writing every slide. Um, and I said, well, that's probably what I did. And I probably read the slide because I was so uncomfortable with knowledge that I just didn't know what to do. I think what happened is, and, and this is where I think you can switch, is... You can get into more, as you tell stories, stories are often really illustrated more with pictures than with words. And I think the minute you um, know that you can go off script, but you're comfortable going off script is when you feel that you can you know, uh, transition to that approach, Chad. So for me, it's a lot of it is just make sure that whatever I'm, I'm going to say, I can actually feel authentic about it. So when you feel authentic in what you're saying, you don't feel at all uncomfortable about what you'll say and how you'll say it. You know, in a former life prior to uh, starting medical school, I, I used to actually, uh, like I did the whole Royal College, but uh, for speech arts and, and drama, and uh, used to spend a lot of time kind of analyzing the best 
speakers and public speaking and and you know they talk about extemporaneous versus uh, like a written speech and at like 99% of uh, talks that you listen to are someone reading from a prepared thing or basically reading off their slide I'm curious how much time you have to actually put into rehearsing these talks that you give uh, prior to prior to giving them or is it is it something that you just know the content so well that it just comes off the top naturally here's the point um, and I'll take another example. So 2012, Emil Shemish, you know, um, a very, very close uh, friend. And, you know, I would consider him equally a mentor. He's been really, really an important figure in my life uh, academically. And it's just been super. He said, Mo, I'd like you to give the presidential guest lecture when I'm president. And, and, uh, and he said, I want you to do it on that thing you do, right? Which is, and he said, jokingly, think big. And I said, oh, okay. All right. You know, it's that's, I had about a year. Um, so that was the year around that 2012, I can't remember, 2012, 2013, where I did what I, you know, what others would probably do is I started with the slide deck and I started giving it at grand rounds. I started giving it at every place I could give it. And I would know very intuitively what slides are working and, and or I'd rearrange them. And so I, I must have given Think Big on a very small venue to maybe 15, 20 people uh, about 40 times. Um, and so when it got to... Um, the COA for 200 people and on a very important day for, I mean, so I had two things. I never wanted to let him, I didn't want everyone, anyone to ever think that Emil Shamich made the wrong choice in asking me to be a presidential guest speaker. So I was, I was so invested in this being his day, not mine, that I just wanted him to feel proud as being the president. And I just, I was just all in it for him. And so I just, but then the anxiety was, I got to make sure that this, you know, that I don't do something that, uh, you know, doesn't reflect on him as a president. So, um, I had chosen pretty well after those four times. I had, I had my 40 slides. I had a very, as you would call it, a tight set, so to speak, because I'd given so many of these small little club performances. And I don't mean small, meaning they're unimportant. They were probably the most important thing you can ever do. Um, I think standing in front of a mirror and practicing is, I wouldn't say it's useless, but it's near useless. You need to have feedback and you need to get better at something. The only way you get better at something is through iterative feedback, right? It's deliberate practice. I can swing a golf club as long as I want. And I'll still have that horrible hook unless someone sits with me and watches me do it and gives me feedback. That's deliberate practice. I think it's also maybe ties in a little bit with your use of social media. I mean, your your Instagram is is just awesome to look at, and, and it really it's photographs. I spent a lot of time with those pictures, man. I spent a lot of time with those pictures. Yeah, no, you can tell because they're they're beautiful. They're beautiful pictures. Oh, very kind, very kind. <laughs> so I, I can say this before you jump into that. So there's a guy. So I, I posted a picture yesterday. I was at I was just riding a bike, and I, I said I'm going to add this like you know um, speed effect and make it black and white. And someone said, "Can I ride with you and paint with you? I, I'm available tomorrow." <laughs> I said, "Oh, all right, <laughs> let's do this." <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, well, I was just going to ask, like, why did you kind of get into social media? It's kind of unusual, I would say. Maybe, maybe maybe less so now, but certainly it, it, it's definitely not, uh, you know, typical for a surgeon to be really engaged in something like Instagram or social media. And and why why do you think that's so important? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was actually, well, it's for, it's for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the first and foremost was, you know, I have a 12 year old and I have always said that, you know, you have to understand like you can sit there and say, well, that's not how we do it. Right. I, I feel myself saying that all the time. Well, you know, when we were this, we, we didn't do this. And so that I just want to stop. So I, I'm learning things and I want to get good at something to understand what it is that attracts a group of people that in some days I would like to hopefully have, you know, meaningful communications with the other big part of social media that I got, got me into it was less about, um, you know, uh, flexing or the hating that goes on. It's, it's, like, you know, it's really, look at Instagram as a tool for someone uh, of my age. It's not, it's not doing anything uh, particularly to, uh, to improve my academic career or anything like this. But what I do think it's done for me is it's allowed me to connect on a different level with the numerous, I mean, hundreds of graduate students or residents and trainees that, that probably I wouldn't have gotten to know um, that way because I don't get to travel to all the places I want to get. And more importantly, I think it's a way for others to get to know you beyond the... Um, facade of what they think you are. I mean, they're, we, we've been there, Chad, right? Uh, you know, where you, you build up an individual and they, they, they almost become um, 
you know, impossible to relate to because they think, well, there's nothing I can relate to this person. So I, I don't really want to inter interact with them. I don't even want to email them. I don't want to talk to them because there's nothing to do. Suddenly, oh, I like riding bikes. Oh, this guy likes to sketch here and there. Or, oh, oh, this person likes to go to that place. You know, it, it, it makes it very, very uh, unique. The one thing, though, I have been very careful for, so, and I made a lot of mistakes early on, is early on I started putting things that I, I started yanking off later because I said, basically, if someone in five minutes should be able to look at my uh, photographic pictures and say, I think I understand what drives him from a non-work point of view, like what are the things that he enjoys doing? And so I've been very careful now to curate it a bit more than I used to. Um, and you know, now I'm just kind of used to doing it and I quite you know enjoy just the art side of it um, more than anything else. And quite frankly, some of the storytelling. Um, the other thing though I do use is LinkedIn, which I do find actually a reasonable tool. Most people who use LinkedIn think they can't find any reason why to use it. It's just like a CV, an online CV, but there are some really meaningful connections. I'll probably get one or two really meaningful new connections a year from that. But those connections I would have never had. Like I would have never met them and it would have never led to any sort of meaningful interaction. So because of that, uh, I continue uh, on both of those kind of channels. Geez, now, now, now I feel bad, Moe. I, I keep uh, deleting that link every time the invite comes from <laughs> LinkedIn. I guess I should Well, you know, I tell you, I'll tell you. Like my my LinkedIn um, uh, network is much bigger, not much bigger, but it's bigger than my uh, Instagram network. And um, like for example, it just it just you know like and you tell stories, right? Like so, I might be at twenty nine. I'm 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 coming up to thirty thousand on on LinkedIn. And it is a very interesting group because it's a group with a slightly different mindset, right? It's not about what you ate last night, um, although people tend to post that, but it's not really about that, right? It's not about some random co 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 comic little um, you know, meme. It's really they're trying to uh, provide insights on areas and they're looking to share knowledge. And, and so it's kind of neat because LinkedIn has this one thing that you, you know, if you joined it, you, you, you would uh, get it. It's just um, you can say, I'm willing to interact with people who earlier in their career who might have questions. So what happens is every week they'll get like 10 people saying, hey, you've been identified as a virtual mentor to somebody. And you check their profile and you realize, oh, you know, I've been there. And you just take mm -hmm. 10 seconds to respond. And I think it makes a difference for them. And then they hopefully can give me insight as to how it worked if, if, it, if they tried it. Wow. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. That's fantastic. Well, I'll be your first connection. Just do I that love it. All I right, love right, it. Right, I'll, cool. I'll take you up on that. Awesome. Mo, Mo, I want to just swing back uh, to, to one of the concepts you, you briefly touched on and you and I have talked about before, and that's the concept of, of the hyper performer within a given environment. And you weave that so beautifully into a number of the talks they've seen you give. I was wondering for our listeners if you could tell us what a hyper performer is and how that person interacts and potentially impacts their immediate environment and maybe even some of the struggles that the hyper performers uh, encounter. Right. So let me, let me, um, let me um, tell you what, you know, the, like the graphic I use, but, but where I've actually evolved to that whole statement. So, you know, there's this, you know, we have talked about the bell curve and the bell curve is, you know, there's going to be, a, 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 most people are going to be kind of in the, in, in the middle of the curve. There's going to be some group, a group of people at one end one at the other, but there's this other curve called the power log or the power law or the log tail, which is there's going to be a very, very, very few number of hyper performers. And these individuals can be researchers. They can be um, you know, surgeons. They're going to be technical people. They can be pilots. They can be in any area, right? And think of any area where there's going to be a super, a small, super number of high performers. And then there's this very long, gradual tail that goes up for a long, 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 long way, um, in which you know people kind of um, are hopefully drawn up by this group of people. Like they're kind of you know they're they're drawn up in a way that these high performers can change it. So go back to the statement. And I used to use this argument all the time. There probably isn't a university department in Canada, let alone the world, where if you took less than three or four critical hyperperformers, I would even say probably three hyperperformers leaving Harvard or leaving Mayo or leaving a top university in Canada, any of our any, any of our universities in Canada uh, as a department, would leave would render that culture very very different. And you probably know those individuals, right? And you know very well how that culture would shift. That to me is the essence of what, what that term means. Now, you can take a step back and say, well, and this is what I've tried to do a long, long time. And I think in COVID-19 in many ways has forced people to really reevaluate what performance means. And 
There's a quote in a, in a small little blog. So I've been blogging a lot recently. And one of the blogs is on the productivity paradox. And, and I, I kind of started with this, you know, I started the podcast talking about this productivity paradox, but there's a quote actually by this group um, of uh, business, you know, um, insight folks. So this guy by the name of Hegel, if I recall, was one of the people, but they said something along the lines of like, when it comes to accelerating performance, there's a paradox. And if we want to have a greater impact faster, we have to slow down. We have to slow down enough to reflect on what we've done and where we're going to go. And that for me has been probably the whole mindset, Chad, about restructuring. So, so when you and I chatted last or when we talked, you know, I was talking about, well, um, you know, you've got to be more creative. And I think it's really important to find those things that, you know, that give you pause, um, whether, however you find it. And I've been using this um, as one of my like last slides uh, for probably the last two years. And I've done it because I actually wrote it down. Um, and aptly, it has this um, acronym THINK, which is kind of exactly what we should all take some time to do. And it reminds me to do it. Um, and the T in think, and I think hyper-performers in general embody these characteristics. I really do because I've watched enough of people um, and most of mine is from observation. I observe other people um, and I spend a lot of time looking at them as I think you have um, and you try to make it. But these people who are the high-performers, they think. And by think, the T, they try new things. You never see them just sticking to one thing. They're actually very comfortable jumping into other things. You know, there's a paper about a number of Nobel laureates. They followed 40, uh, 40 high performance scientists of which eight became Nobel laureates over a 40 year period. I mean, imagine that experiment that they wow. did, right? That, right. So they did, but check this out. So the eight individuals that got a Nobel prize, remember every one of them, they thought were capable of getting it, but what was made it different? What were those eight people different? Well, you distill down this beautiful paper, that is an eloquent paper. The thing that isn't eloquent about it, unfortunately, that it was just all men. Back in the you know those days, they, they, they didn't have any real opportunities for anyone but men to excel. But if you extrapolate that to all people, um, the real power in that was that these individuals tried new things. They were almost like childlike play, right? So they would go to, um, uh, you know, the, the, this, there's this one who was... Uh, uh, you know, an astrophysicist, but he would you know hang out um, in the labs of the economists, and through that was able to build all kinds of theories that helped you know uh, change the way uh, of uh, you know dynamics and electrodynamics, for example. So all these sorts of things. So try new things. They all look like they're having fun. Actually, they're not in, they're not uh, um, um, unhappy. So the H for me was have fun. Um, just find ways to have fun, and if it's not fun. You and I are a little bit different. I'm sure Amir probably doesn't have quite the privilege to be able to control how his day goes. We have a little bit more power to control it. So I try to instill a degree of, if I'm not really enjoying something, I will do everything in my power to get rid of it um, out of my daily life at the extent that you can. So don't take on responsibilities if they're not enjoyable um, and just do things that uh, give you some degree of personal satisfaction. For me, the number one thing though is the, the I. Invest in your 20%. Now, I'm going to ask you both of you guys this. List 20% of the things in one or two or three that give you 80% of your joy. And for me, around 2012, uh, no, sorry, this was like 2018, sorry, not 2012. I was in Nepal with a colleague of mine, Brad Petrizor. We were actually, you know, like standing on this hillside, staring out at, uh, you know, this beautiful, you know, uh, array of mountains in the, in the back uh, that are the Himalayas. And, you know, you're standing there and you're at 10,000 feet or so, something above uh, sea level. And you're going, I can't believe this is life. This is it. And you're just, you're alone. And I kept thinking, what are we doing? What are we doing? Like, why, why am I not doing more of this and getting this feeling? Why do I, why do I not feel this feeling more in my day? And that got me to write down the stuff. What gives me 20%, what gives, what 20% of things give me 80% of my joy. So that I've made it a goal of saying doing more of the same isn't going to get you better. And these hyper performers that I've watched tend to be very, very good at not just saying, well, you know, if I've written a hundred papers and I write a hundred more, I'm going to be better at it. Not really. If you've written a hundred papers and you want to get to a high impact paper, you've got to get away. You've got to do something else. You've got to figure out a different strategy mm -hmm. to get there. 
and you're going to fail. So the end of it is just don't feel failing. In fact, seek it out. So I have done things. It's hard for us in surgery to say, okay, we're going to go and start failing routinely in, in patient care. You don't have to do that, right? So you've got to have a, a low risk opportunity. And so while it's hard for me uh, right now to say, I'm just going to uh, go up there and try to fail in the work I do that's day to day, I can easily have that feeling of failing when I try something else. So I took up randomly, I, you know, I, I, I presume you guys are probably snowboarders or you probably, or you ski or something, but I don't. Um, so I said, I'm going to pick it up. And it was brutal. Like it was brutal to try to learn this. Those are very sore days. <laughs> oh boy. I got, I got the bell ringer. Like I literally felt hell's bells, ACDC multiple times. Yeah. Oh, and it's like that ring. Ooh, I said, okay, yeah, this is this. That's why people don't do this at my age anyways. So, but what I did there um, was I took um, a number of the, um, like, you know, like they were like year one residents or early faculty or, or graduate student who in many ways, when we're talking, feel, okay, you know, Mo's always, Mo can't be wrong in this. And so I'm just going to go to him for advice. And, you know, I always think I'm wrong, but they don't ever think I'm wrong for some reason. I don't know. It's, it's really because they, they can't see it that way. So I flipped it around and said, okay, they saw me as this ridiculously terrified student going down a bunny hill and, and, you know, and, and they're all like these black diamond skiers. So it was an opportunity for them to be reverse mentoring me and say, okay, now I, he, he, he's feeling what I feel when I'm around him. Now he's feeling it because I know what I'm doing and he doesn't. So it's this back and forth and it was really, really powerful. Uh, and my relationship with every one of them got really strong. And I think it got strong because they saw me as a human being, right? And that's the power uh, part of doing that. And the final part of the K is, it's okay to start again. You can you can reinvent yourself. This concept of like we can't reinvent ourselves, Chad, perplexes me. It's like you know the concept is, and you've heard this, um, and maybe you've been the recipient of it, Amir, right? Which is, oh, you know what? This generation is going to do it. You know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm I'm passing it on to you, right? Um, I'm gonna let this generation do it. And I always remind people of this um, series of pictures, and I show pictures of of Picasso's um, of. of Four, four or five decades of Picasso's life. But when you look at them, the last decade of his life was when Picasso's art really looked like Picasso's art. If you saw his art early on, you'd convince him for some, a realist. You'd think he's like a Renaissance yeah. uh, artist, right? You wouldn't have known that it was Picasso. And the argument I say is most of us aren't going to find who we are, you know, until we're really, really, you know, figured it out. We've gone through many, many cycles. He failed many times, but he wouldn't call it a failure. He would call it learning, right? And and the same argument. I think we have to take that time um, to just take every bit of um, knowledge in our life and assume that it's happening for a reason. And the, those who succeed, the hyperperformers understand it's happening for a reason um, rather than thinking it's just happening to me. Oh, boohoo, right? And my life sucks. The opposite is this is a lesson and something has happened to me and we're going to go forward. And I'm with it right now, Chad. There's a really, really, really motivated uh, resident um, who, uh, you know, just hasn't had things turn out his way. And I said, just look back in five years from now. It'll be the best thing. You'll look back at this. If, if you handle this period right, this will be the best thing that ever happened to you. And it's hard when it's happening to you, but I think when you look back, these type of hyper performers do those things. They try new things. They have fun. They invest in their 20%. They never feel failure. And they always know it's okay to start again. You know, all, all those points are so insightful and so critical. One of the ones I like in particular, um, though you're exactly right, is is the intention and taking the time and creating the environments to show vulnerability. I mean, that creates safety in teams, whether you're Navy SEALs, whether you're the All Blacks, whether you're yeah. two, two people in a research lab. It, it becomes essential, not only getting to know each other, but just in terms of creating that platform to allow people to move forward and really really give them, give them the best of themselves to you, you know? Oh, I'm, I'm fully agree with you. I mean, I think, um, and I would have loved it. Like, you know, think about our training. Um, you know, I never really got to know um, a lot of my mentors in a way that I wish I would have. Like I, I only found out, like I found out recently some really important um, issues, personal issues around, around an individual's, the way they functioned that only now make everything 10 years ago make sense. At that time, I just didn't understand it. But now under context, you understand it. And I think to your point, it gets back right to when you, when you, when you curate, let's say social media and you curate and you, and you interact with residents at, at what I call the virtual office, where we almost have all our meetings are on a bike or a walk, almost all of them. I rarely have a meeting in an office. And 
they get to know you because you're chatting, right? You're having this moment, like we're doing, we're just chatting, right? You have this moment where you get to know the person. Um, and that's been probably one of the uh, greatest tactics that have helped me uh, connect with people in a way that I wish I could have done it when I was younger. I love it. That's amazing. One of the other big uh, um, sort of concepts, Mo, that you've talked about in multiple talks, and it was the title of one of your uh, one of your grand rounds that you gave in Calgary for us, was "Thinking Inside the Box." And I just wondered if you could, for the listeners, sort of define that, define what you meant, and 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 what it means to to being productive and and happy. Yeah. So, I mean, it, and really, like now that I've kind of looked back at everything, what I was doing is I was every year I was basically creating a talk. So the think big talk happened and I did that talk pretty well everywhere. So one strategy I used was that talk is the talk I will give. So when someone says, Hey, can you talk about hip fractures? I'd say, yes, I can. But I'd also like to talk about this because I was pretty trying to, to try to, to build that narrative the year after I kept thinking, well, you know, yes, you could think bigger, I guess, but really it wasn't about that because I was reading around that time from, um, a, a, it's a book by, by a, uh, one of these billionaire investors in Silicon Valley, Peter Thiel. He was the one of the guys at PayPal. He became a PayPal billionaire. But he wrote something, and it wasn't really about um, that that I was interested in. I was pretty interested in this concept, he, a book he called Zero to One, which he says it's very, very, very rare um, to, have, to, to go from nothing to something. Like, you know, imagine a world without the internet and suddenly the internet, or a world without a car and car, or without a plane and a plane. It's, those are they're called generational style innovations. 99.9% of us are not going to have a zero to one moment. However, our education system, the academic system, everything says, you know, you got to have that study. You know, what's your out of the box study? What is that out of the box? And I think what happens, it creates so much anxiety did for me around, I got to have this thing. So I become paralyzed because I don't really want to take on anything that isn't the big thing. And you become actually quite um, unproductive with that model. So the think inside the box is just really the psychology, and it's a simple one, which is you're much better off to do things that lead to incremental um, benefit, which over a period of time will have a major impact, impact because those are all doable things. So it's the concept of, of you know, slowly uh, improving. And the reality is this, and this is the, you know, where most of our bubbles get burst. Most of us don't think out of the box. The box is really, really, really big. So we're all inside the box thinkers, and we're—it's rare to have someone like um, a Peter Higgs, for example, right, who won the Nobel Prize um, for the Higgs boson, for example. He was an individual who sat for weeks on end by himself and basically formulated an equation with never having proof for it. Waited forty years for the world to actually have the technology to even measure what he had done in the hydron collider, and you know, some years later. They say, yeah, the guy was right. Like that's genius. Like he had he had nothing to go on, and we didn't have the way to test it. Now we can test it. He was right. That is genius. Very very hard for us to think about anything we're doing in relation to that. So the box is big, Chad, and I just simply say I'm an in the box thinker, and everything we do is simple and incremental. And if you think big, there are often simpler questions, but you can get a lot of people engaged. And so that that's kind of the that's kind of the gist. I have to pick up on one thing that you just sort of said in passing, which is the the whole virtual office. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that's fan, that's awesome. I, I I don't I don't know that of many surgeons. I certainly hear about that in sort of more corporate settings, but uh, but not as much uh, in in our our very uh, ivory tower research settings. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. So everyone else, everyone's talking virtual, you know, under COVID, you know, we're virtual with this, man, I've been doing this for four years. I've been doing this. So there's nothing, there's nothing um, exciting about what's happening now for, for me. It's like, um, in fact, what, I've, what we're doing is regressing for what I think the real reality is the concept of saying we're doing virtual meetings on a Skype or this or whatever, uh, you know, or Zoom, whatever it is, um, is not really the full intent of what a virtual office to me means. To me, it means get out of the confines of four walls. And you can argue that there's value in that. You know, a lot of people did walking meetings. Uh, you know, a lot of people got out and did this thing, and you know, uh, which is totally reasonable. But for me, it was one thing. My office has all these artifacts and uh, had anyways, I'll tell you what happened. So, and uh, you know, sort of your, your, the wall of degrees, et cetera. It is a very, um, it's not, a, it's a place where you walk in and immediately the person is on guard because they're immediately thinking, okay, 
the decision maker is this person, it's not me. And so you have this unfair advantage over the people around you because you're just at, you're at the desk and it's very, it's just not, it's just, it's not conducive to getting people to open up and give real meaningful ideas and they have them. So got rid of it. And, um, and as of uh, two years ago, I, I just gave up my office. Like I do not have an office at McMaster university as crazy as it sounds. Um, they wanted to bring in a new recruit. I said, you know what? Fine. Bring this person in, take my office. And, and, and he even has my furniture actually. I said, ah, just keep it. It's fine. So I just took all my other stuff out and I've never looked back. And so now every single person who has to meet with me, whether it's the associate chair, whether it's the chair, whether it's the director of, 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 you know, of the department of science, any of them, um, we're meeting for coffees. We're going for a walk. Um, I had, had, you know, I've had meetings with um, the current chair of department of epidemiology and we said, Oh, um, and, and he now says, Hey, do you want to do a virtual office? And, and he picks a place. Said, okay. So we go and we meet and it's just, we're out, we're out and about, and we're talking at a different level. And it's, particularly good, Chad, when you're interacting with students. I find with students and trainees, it's really, really great because they are, are um, they just, they, they, they don't, they feel more, I feel this anyway, they, and they've reflected it back to me that they feel more energized and they have better ideas they feel, and they feel they can share them more because I'm not in a suit and tie usually. We're just, you know, t-shirt, shorts, jeans, whatever it may be. And we, two regular people just trying to have a good conversation about something meaningful often leads to a lot of good things. I, I want to shift gears a little bit, and, and I think we've, we've talked about this in a, in a variety of different ways over this, this amazing conversation, and that's a, to talk about a little bit about a paper that you, put, you published in CJS, which talked about the characteristics of highly su- successful orthopedic oh, surgeons. Oh, yeah, 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 right. right. Um, like, w- was there anything surprising about that uh, study that uh, you, you weren't really expecting, or was it, you know, the, the, the typical things that we kind of think and, and, and have talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, do you remember the date? I, was it too late to early 2000, maybe 2012, 13, something like that. And it was in Canadian journal of surgery. I remember that very clearly. Um, it, it was, um, well, the thing that surprised me the most. So, you know, let, let me just give a precy for everyone. You know, we, we had this hypothesis right or wrong, right. And probably it's, now we look back and think, okay, we could have done it a lot better, but we looked at individuals we felt would be at least for most considered to be successful individuals. So presidents of major organization, department chairs, you know, leaders, chiefs of surgery at various programs. Um, and we were really targeting to say, okay, well, what is it that makes these individuals tick? So they had a fairly long questionnaire um, and we asked a bunch of questions and we we're going to say, okay, well, how do we figure out more about these people? And as you would expect, right? Lots of grants, they brought in lots of money. Um, they seem to be doing everything, right? It's that classic, you know, wow, like, uh, okay, so these are these superstars that just do everything. They're, they're what we would potentially call the hyper-performers. But when you dig deeper, they're not all hyper-performers. There's probably only a third of them that were hyper-performers. Um, and the thing that I remember the most from that particular paper, and I've used that, and I still continue to use it. And in fact, I just think I just used it in Mexico, not even less than four weeks ago um, on a virtual conference, uh, virtual uh, lecture thing was um, 33%. Like when we ask people, you know, um, all these hyper performers in theory, right? All these individuals that we would have thought would have been these, you know, highly, highly successful people. Is this the happiest time in your life? One third of them actually said it was. Two thirds says it wasn't, right? And so when we regressed against that and we said, okay, well, what are the factors predictive of a surgeon saying, you know, I'm fully content with what's happened to me? Because all of them are all, they all have all the accolades, right? So they're all doing very well. Um, the thing I remember is, well, happy, you got to be happy, right? So this, all, all this is informed by own way I think about stuff, right? So you know, they're generally happy people. They are happy with the choice they made in their career. And it is amazing to me um, how many uh, colleagues I have had where I've asked the very simple, hey, how are things? You happy? And that word, it seems like it's nothing, but it is a knife edge to somebody who is struggling with it. And what will happen is, and I do it as a, as a division head, I, you know, as, I'd ask people and they'd say, oh, you know, they start rambling on about all of their, not rambling, but they go on about all of their, you know, uh, what they've done this, that year and they go on about their papers and stuff. I say, great, great. How are things? You happy? And then there'd be a group of people that would say, yep, fine. They wouldn't ignore it and they'd just forget about it. There'd be a couple of people would come back and say, you know, when you said happy, did you mean like in my life or did you mean just at work? Like, what did you mean by that? And at that moment, that person has really reflected. And 
the people like this who are really successful reflect a lot on what it is that makes them happy. These are people also that I think I recall being intrinsically motivated, right? These are people that were, um, like for you, Amir, you're about to go through an exam process, right? That's an extrinsic motivator. You have to get through that exam, right? The exam has to be passed. What's going to really define you is what happens after the exam where there is no more exam. And now it's just about you getting up and deciding what you're going to do and how you're going to make the most of your day because you don't have to worry about studying, et cetera, et cetera. So that motivator is a really important one in this particular group of people. Generally, these people had some degree of, uh, you know, mind health balance. So, you know, they were finding ways to keep themselves either physically or mentally healthy. That, that was another characteristics I really picked up. And they, it's balance, right? They figured out a way to balance um, all those things. And so while it seems that they were hyperproductive, you think, well, you know, kind of like, um, like um, there's this narrative, Chad, that I'm sure happens definitely in trauma. And uh, I've heard of tons is, you know, you can't sleep, can't sleep, you know, classic, you know, from the classic album, Nas, you know, the Illumatic, where he says, you know, sleep is the, end, uh, sleep is the cousin of death. Like, no you got to sleep. You got to get some sleep. You got to sleep. You got to get good sleep so you can actually move forward. Um, and for me, I think some of these folks actually by taking a step back, you know, being really thoughtful about all the other things have been able to propel above uh, the other. So that one third of them were doing some pretty amazing things. And I think that one third could be classified as the hyper performer group. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.